to our May Narrative Medicine Rounds. Um, and as I do uh, every month, um, it's not just me up here at the podium, it may be me physically, but it's all of uh, the core faculty of the program in Narrative Medicine who welcome you. So on behalf of our director, Rita Sharon, who's right there, and Morris Spiegel, who's right here, um, Craig Irvine, who's a colleague who's physically not here, but Pat Stanley, who's <laughs> who's looking at me in a shocked face, Pat Stanley, <laughs> um, Marsha Hurst, uh, Eric Marcus, and Nellie Herman. I want to welcome all of you to our monthly Narrative Medicine Rounds. For those of you who haven't been here before, maybe I see a couple of new faces, right? A couple of new people here? Yeah, yeah. Um, this is our uh, monthly series of uh, authors speaking, scholars speaking um, at the interseas, uh, about their work at the interseas of humanities and healthcare and narrative. Um, and we are happy to be a meeting ground of not just clinicians at Columbia or students um, or scholars from the 116th campus. We're happy to be a meeting ground for all of us interested um, in this work. So, you know, this, in this room we have artists and writers and scholars and clinicians and, uh, you know, performers and um, all sorts of people. And it really becomes a wonderful embodiment of the interdisciplinarity that is narrative medicine. And as I say every month, you know, look to the right, look to the left, because you never know who over wine and cheese you might be collaborating with next month. Right? Who you're going to be writing a grant with and co-authoring a book with. So, because lots of generative work gets started in this room. So, be forewarned. Um, so, with that forewarning, um, I want to thank, and I want to thank all the good people I want to thank. Um, first and foremost, of course, um, our good friend Joe Gattuso, who is not here, um, and uh, his colleagues at MBS Box and Common Health, who have made these rounds possible this year. Um, we also want to thank uh, the fabulous staff and Tony um, of the faculty club here, who take good care of us with their uh, yummy treats. Uh, Stalwart Stan Sandra of the bookstore, who's back there uh, selling books. Um, we, I would also like to thank in absentia um, Nithin and his team at the Center for New Media, who have made our podcasts, our audio podcasts around possible. So if you go to our site, narrativemedicine.org, um, and click on the rounds link, every round from January of this year until now are available on audio podcast. Uh, next month's rounds with uh, Dr. Oliver Sachs, which will be our final rounds of the year, will be available on a video podcast. Um, and I'll tell you something else about that in a moment. But um, last and certainly not least, I must, must, must thank our uh, stalwart uh, photographer, videographer, and audiovisual uh, professional um, and go-to person, Connie, who is right there. Um, so before I hand over the microphone to my colleague, Maura, who will be introducing um, our speaker for tonight, uh, Priscilla Wald, I wanted to say just two quick things. Uh, one is about next month's rounds with Dr. Sachs. They will not be in this room, okay? So for those of you who are here, they will not be in this room. Spread the word. Um, they will be in the Hammer Health Sciences Building, which is our library, HSC 401. 
and we'll, that'll be on our website, not posters, but I just want to say that out loud. Um, and uh, at the same time, 5 to 7 on, Janu on June 3rd. And I also want to just announce, for those of you who haven't heard me go on and on about it every single month, our master's degree is starting in the fall. Um, so the MS in Narrative Medicine at Columbia University starts in the fall. Um, and after our June rounds, we'll take a hiatus. And our next rounds in September will be you know, when our master's degree program students will be here. So that's wonderful news. Um, so thank you all very much for coming. I look forward to seeing you next month. And um, I don't know why I did it, but I handed over the pleasure of introducing Priscilla Wald to uh, my colleague and friend, Maura Spiegel. And in fact, I know why I did it. It's because she's really good at introducing So Maura Spiegel. It is, it is my great pleasure to introduce Priscilla Wald to you. She and I are old friends, and I am one of many, many people in our profession, in the English department world, who has been the beneficiary of her intellectual generosity and her warm, enriching comradeship. Um, as I review her remarkable and distinguished career thus far, I must add a word about what is not included in her outstanding resume. What, to my mind, makes this resume all the more outstanding and astonishing. That is, her having accomplished all of this while being the kind of teacher who changes lives, the kind of mentor who gives people their start in life, and the kind of person who focuses her efforts on those she can help rather than those who can help her. She is a scholar, and we don't have a feminine form for this word. She's a mensch. <laughs> so, Professor Wald graduated from Yale University, summa cum laude. She received her PhD from Columbia's Department of English, and in a rare break from protocol on the department's part, she was promptly hired as an assistant professor. I should note that while she was in graduate school, she managed somehow to break through to become a special candidate at Columbia's Center for Psychoanalytic Training and Research. <clears throat> She's now settled at Duke University, where besides her work in the Department of English, she has a secondary appointment in Women's Studies and serves on the steering committee <coughs> committees of the Institute for Global Health and Information Sciences and Information Studies and on the Curriculums Committees for Certificates in Global Health and the Institute for Genome Sciences and Policy. She is an affiliate of the Trent Center for Bioethics and Medical Humanities. Professor Wald's many publications find their impetus in her lifelong concern with matters of social justice. She has found ways to bring literary studies to bear on the world we live in, in conceptually groundbreaking and wonderfully lucid ways. Her book, Constituting Americans, Cultural Anxiety and Narrative Form, has become a classic in the field of American studies in its searching approach to the complexities of American subjecthood, nationality, and naturalization. In her new book, she's going to speak about today, Contagious Cultures, Carriers, and Outbreak Narrative. From, um, she explores how disease is represented through language and how scientific and medical ideas about disease and contagion suddenly inform and are informed by cultural narratives. As one of many, many admiring reviewers noted, quote, Wall brings an analytical ability of surgical precision 
carefully guiding the reader through layers of meanings which she teases from her source texts. She also attempts to ground these texts in the unfolding social, cultural, and scientific developments which led to their creation. The result is a richly detailed exploration of the mutually constituting cultural and scientific stories encapsulated in epidemiology set against the backdrop of 20th century U.S. history. Priscilla Wong. for inviting me. My understanding was, but I could change this, that I'm doing a reading, right, from the book. That is that what people are expecting? I hope. Um, I could turn it into a talk, actually, but. Um, so, okay. I want you to start by imagining that you're on a plane and the person next to you starts coughing uncontrollably. <laughs> How many people have not had this happen to you? Now I want you to be honest with yourselves, if not with me. How many of you didn't think, and fill in the blank, if it was recent H1N1, uh, multi-drug resistant TB, um, <laughs> Ebola, you know, perhaps? Um, so what you were experiencing is life within the outbreak narrative. And that's what I write about. <laughs> you, you knew, you wondered. <laughs> so um, what I write about is this thing called the outbreak narrative. And the term first circulated in popular culture um, from Richard Preston's 1992 New Yorker article, Outbreak in the Hot Zone, which became a book, Hot Zone, and was then the impetus for the 1995 film starring Dustin Hoffman and Rene Russo called Outbreak. And I was gonna show you a clip, I do have it with me, I can show you at the end, but I wanted to stay within my 45 minutes, so um, I'm gonna wait till the end, see how I'm doing. Um, and so what I wanted to do in this book is to try to understand what this story was, what it was doing, what its consequences were, and most of all, where it had come from, because that's really, for me, as a kind of cultural historian, what I first asked. Where did this thing come from? How did it evolve? And my search, um, the, the immediate um, uh, past of it, was a 1989 conference where the concept of disease emergence got defined, and certain conventions um, got put into, if not circulation for the first time, and this is visual and textual rhetorical conventions, certain symbols became more and more prominent um, in uh, the popular fiction and film and the mainstream media. I'm just gonna show you a few of these images of the outbreak narrative. Um, okay, uh, do I wanna leave that one up? Not really. <laughs> Here are some of the terms and concepts, wait, okay. Um, so we'll, we'll have patient zero up there as, as the presiding spirit. And I am going to start with carriers in my reading. So, um, so my research led back to that. But even further, um, I found myself going back to the beginning of the public health movement in the US and to the identification of the first healthy human carrier of an infectious disease. And that was Mary Mallon, typhoid Mary. Um, and what happened as a result of this, everything changed, the entire culture changed. What happened as a result of the identification of Mary Mallon was now it wasn't just the person next to you coughing who might make you sick, but the person next to you who wasn't coughing might kill you. And suddenly, everything changed. There's a wonderful book about this by a historian named Nancy Tomes, T-O-M-E-S, it's actually pronounced Toms, um, and it's called Gospel of Germs. And she talks about all of the changes that happened in the culture because of, of microbiology and the discovery of the healthy carrier. 
And that's where I want to begin. I want to look at the healthy carrier is often now called the super spreader. And that's where I want to um, begin my reading with the super spreader. And I now need many pairs of glasses. Super spreaders aren't just interesting because they're atypical, observes Thomas Nicholas Thompson of the Boston Globe, but because they serve as network hubs connecting everyone to everyone else in a few short hops. They are figures of fascination as well as of fear because of the connections they elucidate. The routes traveled by communicable disease light up the social interactions, the spaces and encounters, the practices and beliefs of a changing world. That was as true at the beginning of the 20th century when healthy human carriers were first identified as it is at the beginning of the 21st. Ideas about contagion register the intrigue and possibility as well as the anxiety generated by those changes. The physiological metamorphosis of human carriers turns them into representational figures of the fact, the danger, and the possibilities of human interdependence in a shrinking world. Their lived experience of the impact of changing social interactions on individuals explains the hold they have had on the public imagination since the identification of the first healthy human carriers of disease in the early years of the 20th century. An article about scapegoating and SARS, which was coming out when I was finishing this, I mean, which was, which was the most immediate uh, pandemic. An article about scapegoating and SARS in the Irish Times acknowledges the power of the figure in a description of the most notorious carrier, Typhoid Mary, as a mythic archetype of the pestilent immigrant infecting a healthy Western society. Typhoid Mary was the first healthy human carrier of a communicable disease to be identified in the US. And with mythic archetype, the author conveys how her routine invocation as a point of reference has turned her into a stereotype, the paradigm of the super spreader. Critical of the stigmatizing, he uses mythic synonymously with false belief, but the more specialized meaning of the term aptly describes the representational potency of this paradigmatic figure and of the outbreak narrative to which the figure is central. A myth is an explanatory story that is not specifically authored, but emerges from a group as an expression of the origins and terms of its collective identity. Its strong emotional appeal derives from and affirms the fundamental values, hierarchies, and taxonomies that are the preconditions of that identity. Mercia Eliana identifies myths by mood and plot, the sense of timelessness and renewal, of a connection to origins and sacredness associated with a periodic re-entry into time primordial, where a primal struggle between destruction and endurance is repeatedly reenacted. While myth is frequently a term associated with primitive cultures or used colloquially, as in the Irish Times article, to refer to a fictitious belief, myths remain a significant expression of theologically or supernaturally inflected collective identity in the contemporary moment. I follow Bruce Lincoln in defining myth as a small class of stories that possess both credibility and authority, which they derive from their expression of paradigmatic truth and through which they evoke the sentiments out of which society is actively constructed. And Joseph Molly, in his use of the term to describe the narratives that express and explain the beliefs in the common origins and destinies that alone turn the new imagined communities into real because very old ones. Especially prevalent during times of rapid social transformation, these stories articulate the moral norms and social forms of life as enduring truths. 
Microbial invasions take a mythic turn when they are cast as the response of the earth itself to human beings who have ventured into primordial places they should not disturb. Understood alternatively as defensive and vengeful, this primal reaction is a recurring feature of outbreak accounts, not only in fiction and film, but also in scientific and journalistic descriptions where the term primordial appears frequently. The carrier is the archetypal stranger, both embodying the danger of microbial invasion, most explicitly in the human viral hybrids with whom I end this study, and transforming it into the possibility for rejuvenation and growth. An ancient Muslim proverb has it that anyone who stays in a land where there is epidemic disease is a martyr and blessed, notes a writer in the Boston Globe. Even more so the carrier, who both suffers and represents the sins of the modern world. This figure embodies not only the forbidden intrusions, the deep connections, and the most essential bonds of human communion, but also the transformative power of communicable disease. Figures such as Typhoid Mary and Patient Zero become mythic in these accounts because of the simultaneous demonic and representative, even redemptive, but also distinctly social, one might even say theosocial, functions that they perform. Contemporary narratives of emerging infections register the influence of earlier accounts of plagues and theories of contagion, contemporary scientific explanations, and social concerns. These narratives are critiques of socioeconomic inequities and titillating tales of apocalyptic struggles with primordial earth demons, hard-headed analyses of environmental exhaustion, and hopeful stories of timeless renewal. As they simultaneously forecast the imminent destruction and affirm the enduring foundations of community, they offer myths for the contemporary moment, which explains the imaginative hold and the persistence of the story that I am calling the outbreak narrative. The consequences in all of these realms, when medicine meets myth, is the subject of this book. So um, another central character um, in this story is the animated microbe. And what I found is that it was virtually irresistible for scientists not to attribute agency to the microbe. It was impossible in these texts to talk about the microbe as just this entity that gets constructed. It has will. It has agency. And microbial warfare is the way they consistently describe the struggle between science and the microbe, or humanity and the microbe. Um, and one of the things I talk about in this book is what we don't see when we start thinking in ter terms of microbial warfare. Who are the protagonists and who is invisible in that formulation? And when I've given this as a talk rather than a reading um, for medical audiences, I get constantly the, the question, well, but it's just a metaphor. And part of my argument is metaphors govern the way we think. We think in language, we think in image. And these things really influence how we understand the nature of the health problem um, and the general global problem um, that I'm analyzing. So um, my reading here is about the animated microbe. Nothing, can everyone hear me okay? Is this working? Okay. Nothing better illustrates the reluctance to accept nature's indifference toward human beings and the turn from the ecological analysis in accounts of emerging infections of all varieties than the seemingly irresistible tendency to animate a microbial foe. 
Most nonfiction accounts of infectious disease begin by stressing the accidental nature of infection, the collision of human beings and microbes resulting from social or biological changes that bring them newly into contact. Scientists emphasize the microbe's lack of conscious agency. But the animation of the microbe invariably surfaces during the course of these accounts. It begins with a reminder that microbes are living parts of an ecosystem and that the primary objective of organisms is to survive. That objective quickly becomes the manifestation of a will to survive, and the organism commences its emergence into agency. Microbes, Richard Krauss observes in a 1992 article in Science, are not idle bystanders waiting for new opportunities offered by human mobility, ignorance, or neglect. Microbes possess remarkable genetic versatility that enables them to develop new pathogenic vigor, to escape population immunity by acquiring new antigens, and to develop antibiotic resistance. They are more than simple opportunists. They have also been great innovators. They are predators, adapting, changing, evolving, and they are canon, having, as Lori Garrett puts it, the ability to outwit or manipulate the one microbial sensing system Homo sapiens possess, our immune systems. In discussions of infectious disease, microbial agency thus slides imperceptibly into enmity, especially in descriptions of specific outbreaks. Richard Preston calls viruses molecular sharks, a motive without a mind. The motive is survival, but it is distinctly intentional. Compact, hard, logical, totally selfish, the virus is dedicated to making copies of itself, which it can do on occasion with radiant speed. The prime directive is to replicate, and his language here is not considerably more dramatic than that of the researchers and epidemiologists about whom he writes. Among microbes, viruses come in for especially sinister attribution in these accounts, perhaps in part because they cause most hemorrhagic fevers and because antiviral drugs are less effective than antibiotics, which makes it harder to stem their progression. It is not unusual for a virus to be described as a foreigner or even an immigrant, uh -huh. as in Barbara Cullerton's reference to another unwelcome immigrant, soul virus, a cousin of Asian Hunton virus, which causes hemorrhagic fever. The metaphor reinforces the association of strangers, particularly immigrants, with disease outbreaks. In this case, the importation of a deadly virus shades into an image of Korean immigration. Bioterrorist scenarios grow logically out of this formulation, especially following the bombing of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on 9-11. The microbes are not only sinister. Outbreak accounts manifest researchers' respect for and even awe of their foe. Isn't it true that if you stare into the eyes of a cobra, the fear has another side to it, Carl Johnson asks Richard Preston. The fear is lessened as you begin to see the essence of the beauty. Looking at Ebola under an electron microscope is like looking at a gorgeously wrought ice castle. The thing is so cold, so totally pure. Tom Geisbert, who first identified the Reston virus as Ebola, sees white cobras tangled among themselves like the hair of Medusa. They were the face of nature herself, the obscene goddess revealed naked. This life form thing was breathtakingly beautiful. As he stared at it, he found himself being pulled out of the human world into a world where moral boundaries blur and finally dissolve completely. He was lost in wonder and admiration, even though he knew that he was the prey. The regard is even more than the appreciation of a brilliant general for a worthy foe. It is closer to the mystical bond hunters often describe with the animals they stalk. And Geisbert, an avid hunter, moves from hunted to hunter when he regrets that he couldn't bring the virus down with a clean shot from a rifle. 
The mystical response is evident in descriptions of the earliest visualizations of viruses, which introduced scientists to a new life form, to something, in fact, that challenged their very conception of life, since viruses could only sustain themselves and reproduce inside of a host cell. They existed in a liminal state, a kind of suspended animation, when outside the host cell. The awe of being in the presence of a new life form, or perhaps of a life form that could alter the way science conceptualized life, characterized many early descriptions of viruses and survived in how they are depicted in the outbreak narrative. The antiquity of the microbes imparts a mythical cast to their battle with human beings. In the hot zone, Preston posits the genesis of Ebola in the Earth's primordial ocean, which came into existence not long after the Earth was formed, about four and a half billion years ago. This suggests that Ebola is an ancient kind of life, perhaps nearly as old as the Earth itself. Another hint that Ebola is extremely ancient is the way in which it can seem neither quite alive nor quite unalive, a feature of viruses generally. One researcher, in disposing of the Ebola-infected corpse of a monkey, considers that he is in the presence of another life form which was older and more powerful than either of them and was a dweller in blood. This is where our zombies and our vampires and all this are. And the Ebola Zaire strain seems to emerge out of the stillness of an implacable force brooding on an inscrutable intention. It is a timeless struggle that takes its competence back to a prehistoric past, explaining the identification of a virus with nature herself. They have the quality of forbidden knowledge, the obscene goddess revealed naked. And what I found um, in doing this research is that this mystique borders on the religious. It actually, we get, um, we get language of sanctification and sacrifice. And I want to read just a short passage about a character who appears um, frequently in these stories, Nurse Mayinga. How many of you have heard that name, Nurse Mayinga? Um, well, if you, read, if you read any of these outbreak narratives, she comes up in fiction and in the journalism, and that's one of the really interesting things, is to watch most characters are composites, most of the fiction characters are composites, and then she's one of the few characters that is actually transported whole from the, um, from the uh, journalism into the fiction itself. In the hot zone, Preston describes the classic Ebola face of monkeys that had been injected with the virus in a research laboratory as looking as if they had seen something beyond comprehension. It was not a vision of heaven. The virus had come from the blood of a young nurse, Mayinga M., and Preston animates it when he describes how the strain of viruses that had once lived in Nurse Mayinga's blood now lived in small glass vials kept in super freezers at the Institute. Nurse Mayinga surfaces periodically not only in the hot zone, but also in other accounts of emerging infection research, and the description of the glass vials often invokes some brief version of the story of her infection. She is a tragic figure in the hot zone, a young student from an impoverished family who had just received a scholarship to go to college in Europe. Preston describes her as a pleasant, quiet, beautiful young African woman, about 20 years old, in the prime of her life, with a future and dreams, dearly loved by her parents, the apple of their eye. Her infection was sacrificial, the result of her caring for a dying nun in a hospital in Zaire, and Preston recounts her denial of her encroaching illness compassionately, refusing to condemn her for having thereby exposed the population of Kinshasa to a deadly infection when, ignoring her symptoms, 
She ran errands in the city and even shared a bottle of soda with someone. The WHO feared that Nurse Mayinga would become the vector for a worldwide plague, a species-threatening event, but no one became sick. And with her vials of blood living on in laboratories worldwide, she came to embody the transformative power of science and the promise of an antidote. While Nurse Mayinga died a terrible death, her blood, like her story, has followed the circuit of a scientific community from Africa to Maryland. In both lies the promise of a cure, the triumph of US medical science. Her disease and death facilitated her entrance into the sacred space of the imagined community of the United States, and her consistent invocation in the literature constructs her as a kind of patron saint of the virus who died somehow for our sins and ultimately for our salvation. Preston's language suggests communion, Nurse Mayenga living on through the sacrament of the virus. And I'm now going to turn um, to the second half of the book. And uh, what I found was, you know, so there was the first part. This, this part was actually the contemporary. And then I went back and looked at Typhoid Mary and, and uh, some of the early sociological literature about social contagion and talked again about the way that the entire culture was changing. In the second half of the book, I start with the Cold War, where viruses and communists shared the pages of the major newspapers and began to commingle um, in many interesting and, uh, we might say, kind of racy ways. <laughs> and for this, I need visuals. I'm going to try this without my glasses, too. So this is a, a shot from um, the early 1980s from Scientific American of the HIV I can't remember now if it was from Science or Scientific American, actually. It was, this was Science, um, of, the, of an um, T cell, an infected T cell, infected with HIV. A magnified photograph of the human immunodeficiency virus, HIV, entering a helper T cell offered the readers of the, of the November 3rd, 1986 issue of, oh, I'm sorry, Time Magazine, I should know this, a visual representation of what scientists and journalists were calling the disease of the century. Since such images have long been a staple of popular science writing, the photograph does not seem remarkable. The caption explains viruses, blue dots, attack a helper T cell, a crucial part of the immune system. Invading the cell, the virus commandeers its machinery, making it begin producing viruses. This eventually destroys the cell, weakening the immune system. The article is typical of the media coverage of the epidemic, pandemic, which, especially in its first decade, tended to fall within the science beat. In the 1980s, the HIV-AIDS epidemic provided occasion for a range of science lessons for the general public. The Time article is entitled Viruses, and the subtitle explains that AIDS research has spurred new interest in some ancient enemies. The title and caption interpret the photograph for readers, explaining that what they are witnessing is an invasion. The language is familiar. Viruses as enemies and invaders insidiously commandeer the machinery of the cell to reproduce themselves and in so doing, damage or destroy the host. The article develops the metaphor as the stealthy viral mar marauder single-mindedly eludes scouts and evades rapidly advancing defenders. The virus is, of course, a diminutive foreigner that, taking over part of the cellular machinery, directs the cell to produce more AIDS virus an alien product that eventually overwhelms the entire system. This remarkably unremarkable language of the viral foe subtly turns a photograph of macrophages into a story of an invasion. It is the result of conventions that consolidated through a conjunction of science and politics in the 1950s. Inviting the reader to look through the scientist's microscope, 
The photograph confers the authority of science on the article and on the story of viral invasion. A microscopic gaze turned with new intensity on human beings in the decade following the Second World War. While viruses first became visible to scientists in the early 1930s, it was not until the 1950s that new technology, technologies of visualization let researchers peer with new eyes into the mysterious workings of viruses, where they marveled at how viruses differed from any entity they had studied before. Unlike their bacterial counterparts, viral microbes existed on and seemed to define the border between the living and the non-living. Viruses showed how the circulation of information allowed an organism to function, promising the imminent cracking, as one piece in the science newsletter put it, of the code for the organization of life from a microscopic egg to a human being. In so doing, they helped to change scientific understanding of the gene and of life itself. The new insights they provided, as well as the media campaign around the mid-century polio epidemics and the widespread trials of a polio vaccine, made virology good copy and introduced a general readership to one of science's newest discoveries. Accounts of viruses frequently shared the page with another topic of particular interest, the allegedly emerging global threat of communism in the politics of the Cold War. The rise of two superpowers competing for world domination and the decolonization movements rippling across continents led to the breakdown of familiar social, economic, and political hierarchies. The inevitable uncertainty attendant on such rapid change fueled the infamous paranoia of Cold War politics. Circulating information animated collective as well as individual organisms as governments classified information on which the integrity and security of the state depended, making its theft a capital crime. This is actually where the term classified information comes from. Conceptual changes in science and politics commingled as the possibility of stealing or corrupting information was imagined in the labs of cutting-edge scientists and debated in the highest echelons of government. It was the subject of speculation in the mainstream media and of fascination in popular fiction and film. It generated whispered promises of the creation or preservation of life and terrifying images of brainwashing and nuclear devastation depersonalization escalating into collective annihilation. In this chapter, I document a gradual change in the language through which the media depicted viral contagion and the changing Cold War world that suggests a conceptual exchange between virology and Cold War politics. As viruses became increasingly sinister and wily, sneaking into cells and assuming control of their mechanisms, external agents such as communists became viral threatening to corrupt the dissemination of information as they infiltrated the nerve center of the state. The exchange crystallized vague and often conflicting anxieties about the changes of the post-war world. The new affiliations that came with political realignments brought the need for new stories of group origins and the triumph of human values shaped in the crucible of possible devastation, the histories and mythologies that accompany profound social change. The insights of virology were central to those stories, as the vocabulary that permeated the newspapers and science journals of the period found extended expression in the plots of novels and films. Those works dramatized the new scientific concepts, and like the media, they acted as a kind of reservoir host, to borrow a metaphor from science, in which scientific and political theories recombined in forming the mythology of the new age. The elusive diminutive foreigner that comes from without and assumes control of cellular mechanisms in the Time Magazine piece is a legacy of the conceptual exchange. And it's interesting.
interesting because several of the reviews I've gotten in medical journals have said, well, why does she turn to popular culture and literature? Why is this about that? I'm about to try to explain that. Um, because I, I think that the literature, and, and one of the things that was a real surprise to me in writing this was how important the invasion of the body snatchers became. You know, I was reading Finney's novel, and I kept going back to it, and I thought, why does this belong to this book? I don't get it, I don't get it. But it wouldn't go away. It was one of those uncanny things. I dreamed about it, it just would not down. And I finally realized both that it was itself a kind of outbreak narrative, and that it was actually using the language that I was seeing in the virology textbooks, and also, on the other side, that the horror stories were actually giving their conventions to um, the stories about viruses and outbreaks. The avant-garde writer William Burroughs was especially prescient about the conceptual centrality of virology to the fashioning of a mid-century mythology. He followed developments in virology with fascination, finding them useful in his efforts to depict the mechanisms of what he saw as the dangerous mindless conformity of the Cold War world. The word virus was a key feature in his witty and arcane novels, in which he offered his own creation story, a mythology for the space age, to explain and revivify a world he found increasingly devoid of spirit and creativity. Burroughs' critical insights and experimental writing, not surprisingly, earned him a cult following rather than a mass readership. But his analyses elucidate the broader appeal and the virological features of a story that would achieve paradigmatic status in Cold War America, Jack Finney's The Body Snatchers. How many of you have seen a movie or read the novel with this? Oh, it's way cool. <laughs> Finney's best-selling 1955 novel generated numerous novelistic and cinematic spin-offs and quickly became a reference point in discussions of social and political behavior. His monstrous pod people, it's about these aliens that come out and steal, our, steal people's bodies. His monstrous pod people infused as they embodied the science and politics of their moment, and the many retellings of their story attest to its continuing explanatory power. Finney's story captured the imagination of a generation that had witnessed the transformation of the promise of atomic energy into a weapon more destructive than most could have imagined and that had heard accounts of the perversion of medical research in the service of torture in the Nazi death camps. Science for them was full of danger as well as promise, and no genre grappled with both in this period more than science fiction horror. The big screen reveled in monstrous creations resulting from radiation or the encounter with dangerous aliens in the course of space travel, and treated audiences to the thrilling horror of an apocalyptic loss of humanity emanating from a variety of sources. Finney's story brought monstrous aliens to medical science and the language of virology into a battle for the survival of the human race. His eerily memorable pod people worked like viruses, stealing the essential information from human beings and producing the mindless conformity that troubled Burroughs, who confessed in the introduction to his novel Queer that he lived with the constant threat of possession and a constant need to escape from possession, from control. And one of the things I argue um, here is that the body snatchers actually produced a subgenre that I call epidemiological horror that depicted the transformative power of disease groups. With the pod people, Finney captured the horror of a protagonist dawning awareness that the humanity of his or her closest associates is being drained from them and the terrifying estrangement that results as they try to maintain their human connections. 
And I want to turn pretty quickly to um, the film, the 1978 film, which was again a retelling of this story. And one of the things that I find really interesting is to look at visual as well as narrative conventions. This is the opening scene of the 1978 film. These are the pods in the outer space, whatever planet they came from, this is what they look like. I want you to watch the juxtaposition, right? Here's the magnifage, here's the pods. Okay, do I make these things up? I do not. <laughs> Oops, and I lost it. And it's gonna start outbreak on us, which I don't wanna do, okay. That's for later, if you're all good instead. I'm, I'm really, I'm getting towards the end here. Philip Kaufman chose to remake Invasion of the Body Snatchers in the late 1970s at the height of what Christopher Lash called the culture of narcissism and Tom Wolfe dubbed the me decade, and that's my generation. The generation that came of age in that decade was routinely denounced in the media as self-absorbed and disconnected compared to their socially and politically conscious predecessors, my older brother, of the 1960s, and he was one of the denouncers. Um, but as the cultural critic Jonathan Schell noted in his widely read book, The Time of Illusion, if the new generation was absorbed in pleasures of the moment and tended to be uninterested in thought or in culture or in anything else that was meant to endure beyond a single generation, it might well be because they were the first generation to doubt that the human species had a future. The 70s generation lived not only with the possibility of nuclear annihilation, but also with the threat to the species posed by environmental devastation on a global scale. A 1969 report from the UN Economic and Social Council warned that for the first time in the history of mankind, there is a rising crisis of worldwide proportions involving developed and developing countries alike, the crisis of the human environment, and that if current trends continue, the future of life on Earth can be endangered. We're still not hearing that message. The threat was collective and often explicitly racialized. People coming of age in the 70s had witnessed the Cold War turn hot repeatedly as the superpowers used the decolonizing world as a battleground. The war in Vietnam catalyzed discontents and ignited a social and cultural revolution domestically as a galvanized opposition to what Harold Isaacs, writing in Foreign Affairs, called the common whiteism of the United States and the Soviet Union. Isaacs wrote of the racial tensions of a new world order in which the entire cluster of some 70 new states carved out of the old empires since 1945 is made up of non-white peoples newly out from under the political, economic, and psychological domination of white rulers and of people stumbling blindly around trying to discern the new images, the new shapes and perspectives these changes have brought to adjust to the painful rearrangement of identities and relationships which the new circumstances compel. Official political leadership in the US had fallen notoriously short as the televised Watergate hearings made clear in 1973, and faith in government and expertise generally waned. Amid accounts of social, cultural, political, economic, and environmental instability worldwide, the me generation of white middle-class Americans produced the culture of self-help self and New Age theology against the alienation of a society that was, paradoxically, increasingly connected and atomized. That generation could see itself reflected in the 1978 remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, more than two decades after the pods invaded the idyllic town of Santa Mira in the 1956 version, Kaufman's pods found root in the gritty, urbane world of San Francisco. Reviewing this hip, campy, and self-referential film in The New Yorker, 
pulling kale to claim for its undiluted pleasure and excitement. It is, I think that's mine, it's so humiliating. I'm really sorry, but it's never happened to me. Just leave it all, it's only four rings of the way. Sorry. <clears throat> for, its, uh, for its undiluted pleasure and excitement, it is the American movie of the year, a new classic, possibly the best movie of its kind ever made. Commenting on Kaufman's brilliant direction, she describes his capture of a zeitgeist as well as a genre and a style. The success of this late 70s renovation of the story of the body snatchers updated the mythic features of the apocalyptic battle for the survival of humanity as it incorporated them into the concerns of their moment. Kaufman drew out the medicalization of the pods and the epidemiological features of the story in a time when the WHO's conquest of communicable disease promised to be one successful global initiative in an age of massive transition, unrest, and uncertainty. Audiences who filed into theaters across the country to see Kaufman's renovated pods, however, could not have imagined how much the film forecast another mysterious epidemiological crisis, an invasion of sorts, that would soon hit San Francisco along with New York and LA. Kaufman could not have predicted how uncannily his film would illuminate the assumptions that colored early accounts of the HIV-AIDS epidemic. And for my um, either final or penultimate reading, depending on, on uh, how taxed everyone is, um, I, I can't not talk about HIV-AIDS, and that's my, my last chapter. Um, and what I'm arguing here is that these, the outbreak narrative, it didn't create, obviously didn't create HIV-AIDS, there's a real pandemic but it created the stories that we use around AIDS. So it picked up on the um, virology narratives and recast them and got us ready for a certain kind of story about HIV AIDS. And the person who first told that story to the general public was Randy Schultz in um, And the Band Played On. Schultz recognized in the epidemiological investigation the drama that would make his analysis widely readable. The CDC task force that handled the epidemic comprises some of his most heroic characters in And the Band Played On. Their discovery of Gaetan Dugas is a turning point in their investigation. During an interview with an alien hairdresser in Orange County, two members of the task force are interested to hear him invoke an airline steward named Gaetan Dugas, who gave him hepatitis, and to muse, I bet he gave me this new disease too. Schultz lingered and lingers in his story over the meaningful look exchanged by the CDC researchers. Finally, he writes, Auerbach and Darrow had a live person telling them he had had sex with his flight attendant. It was, Darrow said later, one of the most significant moments of the epidemic. The ball had dropped on the game show. Darrow looks... Okay, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. This will never happen to me again, I'm sure. <laughs> How many have had this happen, honestly? <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay. Um, Auerbach and Darrow had a live person telling them he had had sex with this flight attendant. It was, Darrow said later, one of the most significant moments of the epidemic. The ball had dropped on the game show. Darrow looks back in this passage as if from the endpoint of the epidemic, deciding what, in retrospect, constituted its most significant moments. The identification of Gaetan Dugas as patient zero is the ball at the end of the game show. 
Uh, previews of the book overwhelmingly featured accounts of patient zero and his exposure as Gaetan Dugas to advertise the forthcoming work. Few reviews of the book failed to mention him, and many headlined him. In an interview with a Washington Post reporter, when asked about the reaction to his book, Schiltz called attention to Gaetan Dugas, the great irony. Here I've done 630 pages of serious AIDS policy reporting, he complained, with the premise that this disaster was allowed to happen because the media only focus on the glitzy and sensational aspects of the epidemic. My book breaks, not because of the serious public policy stories, but because of the rather minor story of patient zero. It is hard to imagine that Schultz really did not recognize the importance of his character. He weaves him throughout the story, tracking his movements as he depicts his increasing recalcitrance and malevolence. Reviewers singled him out as exemplary of, in Sandra Penham's words, the sensationalist and seductive devices and gossip, as well as facile writing that draw the reader into the book. And a 1995 review of Laurie Garrett's The Coming Plague in the Boston Globe, which compared Garrett favorably to Schultz, nonetheless noted that her work lacks the whodunit pizzazz of patient zero. The phrase captures both the appeal and the role of the patient zero story in Schultz's book. The portrait of patient zero conforms to the storyline of early carrier narratives. Dubbing Gaetan Dugas the Quebecois version of Typhoid Mary, Schultz explicitly evokes the earlier story and is remarkable how much this alleged index case behaviorally resembles his predecessor. Despite being told that he may be passing the immunodeficiency around, Dugas allegedly refuses to change his behavior. To his doctor's suggestion that he give up sex or at least avoid exchanging bodily fluids, Schultz's Dugas responds in a voice that betrays a fierce edge of bitterness. Of course I'm going to have sex. Nobody's proven to me that you can spread cancer. In Schultz's account, the airline steward never fully accepts the reality of the syndrome, insisting that he has cancer and that cancer is not known to be communicable. Like Typhoid Mary, this recalcitrant carrier found himself at the center of public health debates about the conflict of rights, his right to make his own choices, and the right of other individuals to be safeguarded. He embodied the dilemma and crystallized the debate. But Schultz demonized Dugas even more than Soper vilified Mary Mallon, and the press responded accordingly. The review of the book for the Washington Post observed that Dugas is a character who would have to have been invented did he not already exist. I am arguing that patient zero was invented, that the transformation of the Canadian flight attendant with the HIV virus into patient zero was a necessary component of the effort to write an HIV AIDS outbreak narrative, and that this transformation had scientific and medical as well as social consequences. Describing the motivations of one gay activist, Schultz ventriloquized, there was a deadly enemy out there. The thing didn't even have a name. Gaetan Dugas gave it a name. Schultz amplifies the conventional journalistic depictions of the virus in his descriptions of HIV. The virus invades and penetrates. It is a killer, a viral culprit bringing international death, a guilty virus, the nastiest microbe humanity had encountered in centuries, if not in all of human history, a horribly cruel and insidious virus, and its human embodiment is vindictive, allegedly telling doctors and friends that he has no obligation to protect others because someone had given it to him. He steps right into the rumors and urban legends already circulating in the press as reports began in the Castro of a strange guy at the English and Ethan Howard bathhouse, a blonde with a French accent. He would have sex with you, turn up the lights in the cubicle, and point out his Carposi sarcoma lesions. I've got gay cancer, he'd say. I'm going to die, and so are you. 
Selma Dritz, the infectious disease specialist of San Francisco's public health department and one of the heroes of Schultz's account, finds the story of Dugas's behavior one of the most repulsive things she had heard in her nearly 40 years in public health. Because of these stories, he enters the mainstream press as an avenging angel, deliberately infecting everyone he could find with the disease that was killing him. He is an airline steward carrying a disease and a grudge, a missing link, the human explosive whose promiscuous presence may have triggered an epidemic beyond his imagining, or, as the National Review christened him, the Columbus of AIDS. Um, now, I'm not, I think I'm not going to read the uh, last section I was going to read, which is um, something that I recently turned into an op-ed about swine flu coverage. So I'll just very quickly um, tell you what the polemic is and how I, the epilogue with which I end. And that is, okay, so what's the problem of the outbreak narrative? The problem is, first of all, it stigmatizes. It stigmatizes people, it stigmatizes places, it stigmatizes behaviors, groups, you name it. It has economic consequences. Um, but most of all, and what troubles me, um, what, what troubled me enough to sit down for 12 years and work on this book, is that, um, is that, um, that by telling us that this is a battle, an apocalyptic battle for the fate of humanity between science and medicine on one hand and um, human beings on the, or microbes, sorry, on the other, the story that we don't get is a story about healthcare and global poverty. And um, if we think about what's going on with the swine flu or the H1N1 coverage, what is it we see? We see everybody reassuring us that they're working on vaccines and that you know there are going to be some quarantines in effect. So it's going to be a government solution. It's going to be a science solution. And what can we do? We can wash our hands and we can like stay off airplanes and out of elevators if we listen to our vice president. Um, not only is that overblown from everything we see now. But also, what are we not hearing about when we hear about the urgency of these um, problems, of these pandemics? We're not hearing about how global poverty is the single biggest uh, cause of the spread of a pandemic, and how lack of access to healthcare is gonna do more damage than the lack of a vaccine or quarantine, or to put it in more positive terms, access to healthcare total access to healthcare as the UN development grants are proposing, which is not out of our reach economically or socially, would do a lot more towards controlling and preventing um, a pandemic than any vaccine or quarantine. Again, I'm not speaking against vaccine or quarantine. Obviously, those are good things. But we also have to be thinking about the social determinants of these problems. And I believe that the outbreak narrative, which came out of a conference that was stressing the need for environmental change and social change, the need to change our habits and behavior, became instead, and, and how we couldn't rely on only science and medicine, became instead a myth about the heroism of science and medicine, and how ultimately we could rely on science and excuse me, and medicine. And so that's the story that I'm worried about not getting told. And what I urge in this book and in the op-ed is that people honestly think about what we can do to make access to healthcare and global poverty um, priorities. And again, global poverty is vague. Access to healthcare is not. The UN has a proposal. The development goals have a proposal. We can do this. Why aren't we? Thank you. Outbreak, and it's only like three minutes. So I'll take questions after the clip of outbreak.
Oh, you know what? It doesn't have sound, though, does it? We don't have sound. Do we? Hold on. I'll pause it. Why don't I take a question while we're setting yeah. up the sound? Yeah. Um, hearing you talk about the confusion of the epidemiological and the Cold War rhetoric kind of reminded me that this new uh, World Health Organization worldwide system alert level that they've given these numbers that they have uh-huh. uh, smacks a lot of the Homeland Security level. Absolutely. And, and what did they call Mexico? Ground zero. Ground zero. Yeah. Ground zero. Where does ground zero come from? Anyone know? First usage of ground zero? Hiroshima. Hiroshima, ground zero. So, yeah, and then of course 9 11. But I'm sorry, I interrupted. Well, I, I guess I was just uh, wondering, yeah, how that, the trajectory of that uh, confusion of the rhetoric plays out, or what else is happening with that? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that the animation of the microbe, and I said this, I referred to this, but I discuss it in more detail in the book, the animation of the microbe is, sounds so, makes the microbe sound so much like a bioterrorist that when we get discussions of bioterrorists, it's really hard to distinguish. And in fact, in a lot of fiction, um, the virus, there's a, I mean, it it's, sounds ridiculous, but um, there's a human viral hybrid. The virus actually begins to take over a human being and act through that human being and becomes a, bi a bioterrorist. So, you know, do we have a threat of bioterror? Absolutely, we do. But how can we even begin to think or talk about the threat of bioterror if we're already seeing it in these kind of strange, fantastical terms? And the same is true of the ground zeros. That's a great observation. We talk about ground zero of an epidemic. Again, that's that military metaphor as though, you know, the bombing objective. And what comes out of that, that place gets radically stigmatized. People are terrified to go there. And again, I'm not saying we should lightly walk into the beginning of an outbreak. Of course not. But think about how, what kind of hysteria the language of something like Ground Zero produces. And they're absolutely getting it from something that people should remember with fear and trembling, Hiroshima, which is an entirely different um, scenario. Yeah, great question. Um, we're not, okay, we're not going to get, so what I'm going to do is while, while you're asking questions, I'm going to go ahead and let it play through since it won't, oops, I lost it. If I, hold on. Okay, if it plays, it plays, and at least you'll get to see visually um, what the outbreak narrative looks like. Yeah. The second issue is the political implications of the Asian invader. 
And we're going to go ahead and, uh, whoops, I'll, I'll even hold it really close because this is loud. It even, uh. Okay, so unfortunately we need to see the credits again. Where is the sound coming from? I can't fast forward, it's a clip. about NIH epidemiologists and every episode started with an establishing shot. What it emphasizes is the importance of place, of geography in this narrative. Certain places are dangerous, certain places are diseased, and the disease moves from the developing countries into the developing
okay. Wow. So just very quickly, what you saw there, this was the film that put this narrative into public view, along with Richard Preston's book, um, which is about something different, but picked up a lot of the conventions. And what you saw were, were three important elements. One is what I call the geography of disease that I explained, about the stigmatizing of certain places, about the movement of the disease from the developing world to the developed world. The second is the depiction of expertise. Yeah. And that's what that shot, I call your attention was about. So the expertise moves in the opposite direction. It always moves from the developed world into the developing world. And what you saw was, um, you know, these, this is not the worst stage of the disease. The worst stage looks like this. We brace ourselves. The camera does 180, and we're looking at the image reflected in the visor of Donald Sutherland's biohazard suit. We are being told he's the expert. He knows how to see this and what to do about it. And then we get the bombing. That was his decision. And that's the third part, containment, interdependence. The danger is it's going to get out into the world. One of the messages of this story is who is expendable? Where do the disease is inevitable? And that's part of what I'm talking about, about the story that doesn't get told. Oh, well, disease is inevitable there. We can't really deal with access to health care there, and so on. You know, who is expendable and who is not? And the whole message of this film is, you know, when the disease actually does, in the 1990s, get into a northern town in California, Donald Sutherland wants to do this again. Yeah. And everyone says, but these men are Americans, sir. Right? Some people are people, yes. other people are populations. Some people, disease can be treated. Other people, it's an inevitable part of life. And that narrative keeps us from thinking that there are things that we can do. And again, the UN development goals are not naive. They've laid out what we can do. Amar Tissant, Nobel Prize winning economist, has laid out what we can do. Amartya Sen says it is more economically costly to have this pandemic that goes out of control than to deal with the healthcare issues now. And where I end is on a conference called the Alma Ata document called the Alma Ata Declaration. It's a place in Kazakhstan where, now I can't remember the exact number, but 168 is the number in my head. It may not be right. But a lot of nations gathered and signed a declaration that by, the, this is in 1978, that by the year 2000, they would have, all the nations would have worked for universal access to healthcare. Are we anywhere near that now? We are not, okay? And one of the reasons we're not is if we haven't made it a priority. We as a nation, we as a world have not made this a priority. And I do not believe that it is impossible to do so. The UN doesn't believe it, Paul Farmer doesn't believe it, lots of educated Amartya said, etc. That is my board. Wow. That's the, that part of the book. Yeah. Wow. This, I remember this nomination from now, and it, it, it still leaves a very strong image for you, not only this and how it ties with this film. But there's one piece in this film where a young man brings the monkey back, he gets infected, yeah. he checks his girlfriend is on a plane, they're yeah. golfing, um, and then he goes into the movie theater. You remember when they go into the movie Right, it's always for something else. We go yeah. into this movie theater, and everybody's watching this film, and laughing.
where they show people laughing and watching TV, yes. and then they, you know, whenever I see that theme, that scene, I think of Outbreak, that act, I think of Outbreak. Whenever people are laughing in the movie theater, I think of Outbreak. This is what I mean. These images are infectious. This story <laughs> I'm infected. I'm a carrier, and I'm trying to do something about it. <laughs> something that's embedded in the text that we don't think about. So for instance, again, when, when I say, you know, when doctors say to me, but microbial warfare is just a metaphor, I say, look at the fiction that takes the, the, the metaphors in your accounts and turns them into plots and look at the implications of those plots. That's in your metaphor, right? And so one of the things that happens is, and you're absolutely right to notice it, you have human beings that are basically turned into walking viruses. The language of the journalism, of the nonfiction, turns them into walking viruses. And then what happens is you get the fiction where literally, as I was saying before, a virus gets into someone and takes over like the body snatchers. That's where the image from the body snatchers moves into the science. Okay, so the virus has taken over the body and is now acting on its own behalf, and the virus becomes, of course, a bioterrorist. So that notion of, of a certain population or behaviors or individuals that get stigmatized in that way gets blown into this fantasy scenario, and you can see the implications for that group of people, or those individuals, or those behaviors. And I do remember, I mean, we remember, right? We were in grad school here in the 1980s when the whole HIV story was breaking, or the pandemic was you know, first coming to people's attention. And it was amazing, you know, and a lot of our friends in academia obviously are gay. I mean, it's a play, you know, artists and academics. And, you know, and it was amazing to be with my friends when people would literally move tables, we'd be having dinner, and people would move tables not to sit near us. It was an amazing thing. And it was the first time in my life, since I don't walk around obviously different, right? I'm a white woman, middle class, not homeless, etc. I have not had that experience. It was the first time that I had the experience of being that stigmatized person, right? Where people were literally assuming that we there were infected and were going to make them sick. And they didn't want to be unkind, but they were scared. And that's what this kind of story produces. And that kind of fear translates into not only inhumane treatment of people, but also it is not, it doesn't make medical sense because then people are going to be afraid to go to the doctor and get diagnosed. Or, I mean, all kinds of things follow from that 
It's wrong on every level. And again, I'm trying to get to the heart, as you asked, of what that's about, where it starts, um, how it happens. Also, the question that um, the first question and, and the one that followed about the aliens and how we already have this anxiety about other people coming in, and they are also now diseased, right? So these are the the, the way the story works. Our fears of other people get become as though they're rational because now we have the excuse of the disease.
can only be known by somebody who's got some mastery of all of them. And so it becomes an example, not of the English teacher or the person in humanities training as the civilizing veneer, but that, but that what you know, and it only can let us see things that we as scientists and clinicians and citizens are literally dying for the knowledge of. Well, I appreciate that. And, and actually, to illustrate Sanya Pani's point about collaboration, from that time, which was the summer of 1989, um, Rita has been a huge teacher for me. And it's like that whole category of student-teacher makes no yeah. sense. And was one of the readers for this book and made it for the press and made it significantly better by all of the suggestions, not to mention all the instruction over the years and numerous conversations with Laura from 1980 on. I actually in graduate school wanted to be Laura's Talk about an input I could not have written without. So I think we're illustrating your um, point about these collaborations and how they really are lifelong. I mean, so thank you all. Thank you. Priscilla is willing to yeah, hang out, and um, there are books over there. Uh, her book, Contagious, is over there. If you'd like her to sign books, or you'd like to just come up and chat with her some more about um, the ideas of um, contagion and outbreak that we spoke about today. Um, and, or if you'd like to chat with one another and have some wine and cheese, please do so. And uh, please come back. Our next rounds are on June 3rd. So thank you.